Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Charles Goyette. He is an author of a book called The Last Gold Rush Ever, Seven Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit from It. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Charles. Jordan, it is great to speak with you again. Just give us a little bit of your background for people who may not be familiar with your background before you uh, wrote this book. Yes, sure. So I have been uh, in and out of the investment business uh, much of my life. Uh, I wrote a, uh, a couple of books about the gold market a long time ago, an international bestseller in 2008 or nine, called uh, The Dollar Meltdown. Uh, I have been a broadcast commentator uh, basically for all of my life, a popular uh, radio talk show host. Uh, I did a uh, national radio program with Ron Paul for a couple of years that was carried twice a day on 125 stations around the country. And uh, I write uh, political, financial, and geopolitical commentary for uh, for private clients right now. And you have a website, charlesgoyot.com. What can people find there? Well, they'll find, uh, they'll find links, for example, to this conversation uh, after we put it up, but they'll find links to our prior conversation and other material. There are links uh, to my books. Uh, there are links to uh, the dollar meltdown, to this book, The Last Gold Rush Ever, a link to Red and Blue and Broke All Over, How to Restore America's Free Economy, and I suppose some other interesting material as well. Very good. So let's set the economic uh, environment we're in right now. The mainstream view would be uh, the government is about to pass this $1.9 trillion rescue plan. It's going to put money in people's pockets. Uh, it's going to cause a huge economic explosion. The GDP will grow at 10% or something like that. The vaccinations are getting out there. Um, inflation is very low. In fact, the Fed wants more inflation that's been too low for too long. So it's a very rosy scenario. What's wrong with that picture? Well, you know, there's actually, I think there's some truth to it. The other side of the story is the people that say that, uh, you know, the, the economy has been um, has been harmed or to use the popular term of the day to be, has been scarred by some of the events of the last few years. And so the optimists say that, you know, we've got an enormous amount of pent up demand for, uh, for uh, cons- consumer goods, uh, and on the other hand, uh, and this will come to play and the pessimists say, oh, there's all this uh, destruction of jobs, destruction of uh, real estate uh, as far as commercial occupancy goes and so on, uh, destruction of lifestyle uh, um, practices that will not be renewed for some time to come. And so I, I'd say the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. I mean, we know that people will travel. We know motion picture theaters, movie theaters are starting to put some people in the seats down, not like the old days, but, you know, people are, are slowly coming back. So between the vaccinations and I suppose a, a spreading herd immunity and people that are just simply fed up with uh, government lockdown restrictions that aren't always scientifically justified, you know, there, there will be um, some change in uh, the scarred sections of the economy and maybe maybe less than, uh, than, the, than the optimists. I mean, I laugh, I too, I too see the calls for 10% growth. I suppose, you know, 10% growth could be justified if you realize, you know, that it's coming from a year that we were down, I guess, three, what were we down last year? Three, one, three, 2% or something yes. like that. So, so, you know, 10% isn't quite as, 
quite as uh, overwhelming when you realize it's kind of recovering the status ante quo. So there's this big controversy between inflation and deflation. People are saying that we have deflationary forces and the coronavirus was a very deflationary force. It caused a lot less economic activity. Prices dropped. People weren't buying things. The savings rate went up. Uh, you saw literally still have negative interest rates in Europe and large parts. That's also showing that the major force in the world is deflation. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, I would say that that's an accurate description of some of the deflationary forces. And uh, you can easily describe the inflationary forces as well. You know, the national debt of the United States just passed uh, $28 trillion for the first time uh, back at the, uh, the end of March and been hovering around that level. You know, we've got a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill about to uh, be enacted in law with uh, that will be paid for by deficit financing. You've got, uh, oh, you've got all kinds of, uh, of uh, um, spending programs that the Biden uh, presidency is uh, indebted to the constituencies that are pushing them. So you've got people talking about an infrastructure program that could cost, I don't know, two, um, it's hard, it's actually hard to imagine how high it could actually be, but over 10 years, it could be someplace between two and $4 trillion. These are all inflationary forces. My step back or 30,000 foot view of this whole issue is that uh, the government is always trying to inflate. This is what governments do, and government spokespeople and government uh, economists and uh, and uh, politicians are always trying to, you know, to uh, um, to make things look rosy. Always trying to pump up the money supply. Always trying to inflate conditions and so on to the extent that they are able. And the market is always trying to deflate excesses. So when when excesses take place, when uh, when uh, the artificial creation of money and credit blows up uh, a market somewhere to, you know, it could be the housing market, the bond market, blows a bubble somewhere in the economy, natural forces of the economy are always trying to deflate it and bring it down to normalcy. And the government, in this case, the Fed, is always trying to uh, keep the bubble inflated. And sometimes it takes some pretty heroic money printing to, uh, to keep the bubbles going. Which is what we've had here. I mean, we've had the Fed printing money for a long time, buying back huge amounts of bonds, uh, going to pretty much zero interest rates on short term for a long time, and overseas in Europe, literally going to negative interest rates for a long time. Um, is that working? I mean, is that the right thing to do, or should the, the central banks of the world not have been printing uh, so much money? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't buy the, uh, the entire premise of central banking to begin with, so I would say they certainly should have been printing so much money. Look, I'll, I'll even uh, try to give, I know this is kind of an unfamiliar way to address the conversation, but I'll put it like this. All of human history, all of commerce, all of the improvement of our lot as human beings depends on things like uh, trade and commerce, the division of labor, people able to specialize and develop skills and so on, and the entire edifice of commerce and trade, of uh, free markets, depends on people giving something of value for something of value. They give something of their own production for the production of other people. And uh, this is a perfectly natural and healthy way for an economy to work. And people find that, uh, you know, that they can meet their own private personal needs by making, by serving their fellow man, by providing things of service or, or of interest to their fellow man. But when the government introduce, inter intervenes in the picture and provides something of no value 
an electronic uh, bookkeeping entry, for example, as, as as a form of money to purchase real things, it's not playing the game the way that the rest of human history has played it. So, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't see a place in the economy for central banking. I know it's a minority view, but it's only because we've been accustomed to living under this system for well over a hundred years, and the rest of the world has uh, has followed suit. But you know, the track record, in my view, Jordan, has been utterly abysmal. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, but people are saying, we, okay, we've been printing all this money, we're up to $28, 29000000000000 trillion in debt, the Fed's been pouring out uh, its balance sheet, expanding all the time, yet, officially, we still have 1% inflation, and all these deflationary forces, so people saying deficit and money printing just don't matter anymore, we don't, we're never going to get inflation again. Well, it, it, that takes a somewhat constrained uh, uh, view of the nature of inflation in, in, in my outlook. I mean, one of the things about the free market is when the government artificially inflates the amount of money and credit, nobody can say precisely where it will go, where it will find a welcoming home. And it depends on a lot of things. It depends on, uh, it depends, for example, on uh, demographics, people's personal interests, the nature of uh, people's aspirations and so on. And these things change all the time. So when the baby boomers start wanting bigger and bigger houses, you might see some of that artificial credit and uh, money creation go into things like uh, like housing. You can't say for sure when they hit the printing press where exactly it will all end up. Uh, but it's very clear that we've had massive asset inflation under, uh, under this regime. And uh, that has persisted for so long. We have massive um, inflation right now. We see a substantial housing market inflation, and so the the money and credit goes somewhere. And since the uh, the authorities can't control where it goes, they are creating a bubble when they do so. A bond bubble, a stock market bubble, maybe a real estate bubble. The money has to go somewhere. And uh, it doesn't always have to go into consumer prices. And, and, you know, the economists of old used to, I think, take a little more uh, insightful view of this issue of inflation. They defined inflation as an increase in the supply of money or an increase in the supply of money and credit. And therefore, they weren't fooled by it when it showed up someplace unexpected. Whereas today, you know, we've all been uh, taught to believe that inflation is a a phenomena that shows up only in consumer prices. And when you go to the store, bread and sugar and milk and coffee and so on are substantially higher, then we have inflation. That is not the case. And uh, it can go It can go to other places first. It can go to durable goods first. It can go to other places before it shows up in consumer prices. Or it can head almost directly to consumer prices. And I think we're going to see what it's like when it does that uh, in the ensuing months. So you're saying we do have asset bubbles now because of this money that's been printed and borrowed, that the money is not going into building new factories and so on. It's going into the, the markets, pushing interest rates down on the bond market, uh, pushing uh, stock prices up. That's you're saying where where the money has gone for the most part. Is that right? Well, I simply say that's so you've said it for me. I mean, I'd like to state these things in uh, in a little different terms every now and then, maybe change change people's outlook of it, but how can the United States be the biggest debtor in history? And believe me, it's not just, it's not just the $28 trillion. That's the, the iceberg. That's uh, the, you know, the one-tenth that's above the waterline. It's all the unfunded liabilities of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and so on, promises that the American people have been made by government for which adequate provisions have not been set aside to pay. And so, 
Um, and, and so you got you got the, um, tremendous inflation of uh, the stock market and the bond market, but the United States in the meantime is the biggest debtor in the history of the world, and yet we have the lowest interest rates in 5,000 years. How exactly does that compute? Yes, we're going to figure that out after the break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Charles Goyette. His new book is called The Last Gold Rush Ever, Seven Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit From It. You can find out more about him and his books at charlesgoyette.com. We'll be back after this. Finding simple and effective ways to keep employees engaged and customers happy is always top of mind for business owners and managers. And that's especially challenging when face-to-face -face interaction is limited, as it certainly has been for the last year. Trying to find a way to stand out to your customers or make your employees feel extra valued? You trust Uber as a way to request rides and order meals from restaurants that you love. But did you know about Uber's platform specifically designed for businesses? Over 160,000 companies use Uber for business to improve customer and employee satisfaction. Having a hard time getting people to show up or stay engaged in virtual team meetings or events? With vouchers for Uber from business, you can add $20 to their personal Uber accounts so they can easily order meals through Uber Eats before the meeting. Want to make your customers love your business even more? Offer them a voucher for a free meal or ride when they make their first purchase or spend a certain amount of money. Any company can sign up for free and immediately start delivering extra value to people who matter most to the business. Vouchers are simple to send and redeem. Your business has total control over who gets them, when they expire, and what portion of the ride or meal you want to cover. Vouchers are shared via email or text and can be redeemed with a single tap. Best of all, you only pay for rides they take or meals they order. Right now, Uber for Business is offering companies a $50 voucher credit when you spend your first $200 with vouchers. Go to uber.com slash moneypod, P-O-D, to learn more. That's uber.com slash moneypod for a $50 voucher credit. uber.com slash moneypod. Terms and conditions apply. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. 
That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Charles Goyette. He is an author uh, about financial conditions and uh, gold particularly. His latest book is called The Last Gold Rush Ever, Seven Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit from It. And you can find out more about him at his, web- at his website, charlesgoyette.com. Welcome back to the show, Charles. Thank you, Jordan. So we were talking about bubbles and what bubbles are out there. Uh, what pricks bubbles? If there's so much money going into stocks, which have gone to record highs, bonds where yields have gone to record lows, uh, suburban real estate, which is soaring, why would this just not continue for a very long time? Well, it it certainly has continued for a long time in my view. Uh, And, you know, it's the old expression of a bubble in search of a pin. Nobody can say exactly what's going to pop it. It can sometimes be an internal internal event it can be the uh, exposure you know warren buffett has a great expression he says he says when the tide goes out you find out who's been swimming naked right. so you know when there's when there's an upset or a change or something maybe a couple of people head for the door and then more people head for the door and all of a sudden a lot of people are heading for the door and that effectively is the popping of the of the bubble so it can be an exogenous event too i mean it can be you know it can be a foreign policy screw up the flare-up of a you know, a military confrontation or a war of proxies or principles somewhere in the world. Uh, the, the the long history of uh, bubbles popping is, I think, closely related to the outbreak of uh, foreign hostilities. But, you know, at, at some time, the bubble that we're in now is uh, dependent on, on uh, people around the world being willing to buy our bonds, our treasury bonds. And yet, things are changing even on that front. And I suppose if you, if you, if you take a long-term view, you know, I think since probably 2012 or so, so that's 10 years, but China, which used to be the largest holder of U.S. treasuries, is now down to second place behind Japan, but I believe that their total portfolio has fallen by about 30%. So, you know, they say, look, foreign governments are just like ours. I, I had a chance, a couple of years ago, I had a chance to read a really lengthy interview with one of China's leading foreign, uh, one of China's leading central bankers. And it sounded like exactly word for word, doctrine for doctrine, exactly like it could have been, you know, by an economist at the Federal Reserve. You know, it's all the same old Keynesian boilerplate and so on that they subscribe to. But the point I'm trying to make is that these these foreign governments may, you know, they may run their central banks by the playbook and so on. And they may not mind fleecing their own citizens with their own made up money. But at some point. They see what we're doing. They're seeing the massive creation of uh, money through all the QEs and all of the deficit financing and so on. And uh, they don't want to be fleeced by ours. And when that happens, they start to move to protect their assets. And, of course, it's, it's no secret the world knows that central bankers around the world have begun have begun moving their assets out of dollars, threatening the dollar's global reserve status. 
and uh, moving moving assets into into uh, into gold. I mean, Russia may be a pretty good example because they used to be a substantial creditor of the United States, not the largest, but they moved almost all of what they had into gold. Now, when you look at when you go to the Treasury site to look at Russia's holdings of U.S. Treasuries. It's it's down there. It's down there in the asterisks, you know, with uh, like uh, Libya, Nicaragua. Uh-huh. <laughs> they just yeah. they just don't so, have any anymore. Give a sense of the the magnitude worldwide, because it's not just the U.S. central bank that's been printing money. The, the Chinese have been printing money. The Japanese, the Indians, the European Central Bank, all the central banks around the world have printing money. Kind of give us a sense of perspective of how big a bubble we've come compared to history. I and mean, we had hyperinflation in the late seventies when the Federal Reserve was, was printing money at that time. But compare the you know earlier times to where we are today on a global scale. It's so much larger. And I actually was looking at uh, uh, a graphic representation of the size of the bubble today. And uh, the global debt situation and central banks creation of money, money and credit. And the numbers are so big, they just, they, they far surpassed my puny intellect's ability to hold on to them. It's just... I mean, it's, it's, it's almost breathtaking. But the problem is they're so large. You know, what's a trillion? Who cares? Who knows? You know, and so when you start getting into 56 trillion or 121 trillion and stuff, it starts to not make any sense at all. But your point is extremely important that this is not just going on here. This is going on everywhere around the world. It is a gigantic bubble economy. And, uh, you know, the, the, the bigger the the bigger the bubble is inflated, the more it's inflated, the the more the damage when it pops, and that's what's frightening about this. Because you are correct, this is the this is the largest bubble of uh, of fiat of made up credit and uh, money in the history of mankind. I mean, it just far surpasses anything we've ever seen. It makes it makes the mortgage meltdown look like a you know like a a, a picnic, uh, and the the pain that we can suffer from this thing when it when it blows is uh, it's simply unimaginable people forget how many americans americans in their millions that lost their homes five million americans i think was the number that lost their homes in the mortgage bust you know well this pales that to uh to absolutely nothing so it's very dangerous and yet there there aren't any wise heads that i am aware of jordan that you know they're talking about you know trying to let some of the air out of the bubble so that the when it's punctured, the uh, the explosion isn't as massive. There is no constituency in Washington that I am aware of. Maybe we can come up with a name or two. But it used to be, you know, in, in my formative years, it used to be that there were, you know, there were constituencies for fiscal rectitude or sanity in Washington, you know, and you'd have, you'd have people that say, you know, well, where are you going to get the money? Where are you going to get the money? And this is a this is an elementary question for economists. I had coffee with a friend of mine the other day, big government guy. I still like him, a great friend. And he says, "Well, the government needs to do this, so the government needs to do that, and the government needs to do the other thing, and they're going to give these people fourteen hundred dollars. That's not enough money, yada yada yada." And I said, "Well, that's you know that's very interesting, but if you're going to be a mature adult and want to take part in this conversation as an in- informed uh, uh, citizen, then you have to say." When you come up with your Santa Claus wish list, you have to say where the money is coming from. And that's simply not part of the conversation. So, you know, you can ask me, I'm not recommending any new social spending programs, but if I were, it would be incumbent on me to say, well, we're going to have to do that by, 
you know, drawing down American troops in Germany or in Korea or wherever it may be. But we've got well, to find. We've gone through this. Didn't they used to have offsets if you had to increase? Well, there, there, we've been through yeah, all this. Yeah, you had to you had to find a way to pay for it. Yes. And nobody, nobody does that anymore. There are no coalitions. There are no blue dog Democrat coalitions in there. There are just no coalitions. And each party now competes to outspend one another. I don't know. Uh, I don't I don't know if they go home at night and they kind of like go, roll their eyes. and oh, What did I do today? I'm, you know, this is going to end badly in the long run. But I've been hanging around politics long enough to know what they say in private. And what they say in private is, well, if we can just get this passed or if we can just buy these votes or if we can just win this segment of the electorate or if we can just, uh, uh, you know, make some uh, give some uh, goodies away or favors away to cronies here or there, we'll raise more campaign money. And then when we're in charge. When we're in the majority or when I'm elected or when I'm in uh, have some seniority, then we'll get things back under control. But of course, it well, the Democrats gets. are now in charge. They did exactly yeah. that. And this is what they've done. Yeah, sure. So and we, the, we, Repub the Republicans are we no better. If we went back to a gold standard, which we've been off since 1971, would that solve the problem? Well, that would be a big change. It would, uh, you know, my suggestion is, and it's kind of like uh, the Nobel Prize winner Friedrich Hayek is, why why don't we do why don't we do um, something where nobody ha nobody says what the system is? So it's not centralized. Centralized systems aren't very robust. You know, if something goes wrong with uh, you know a centralized power grid, everybody in the grid suffers. So a decentralized system, in which uh, you know, you Jordan and I may decide to do something. Uh, uh, with Bitcoin, and somebody else may want to do something in uh, in euros, and somebody else may want to use dollars. And there's a guy going around talking about how you know the IMF special drawing right is the key to salvation of our future and stuff. Well, that's that's fine, I, but I'm not putting my retirement in special drawing rights, and I'm not putting my retirement in in uh, you know game stock or something like that. So uh, I think we need the decentralization of the monetary system. And it doesn't have to be a massive thing. All we have to do is get rid of the legal tender laws. The legal tender laws say that, you know, you, you have to use this in the payment of debts, that uh, the courts won't enforce contracts in gold the way they will uh, legal tender contracts and so on. And so people's, people's options to develop alternative and more robust systems of money are, are, are limited by the legal tender laws. But if the money is sound, if the money has a lasting, enduring value and it's evident for everybody to see, you don't need legal tender laws. People are anxious to use money that uh, that is reliable. People are anxious to save money. I mean, that's the whole point of Gresham's Law. When there are two forms of money competing, you know, people will take the good money, the real money, put it, uh, you know, put it in the candy dish at home and save it, and the uh, fraudulent or the, the sketchy money that circulates, they'll spend and pass along. They're very good at discerning, you know, what, uh, what's, what sound. Are there any movements? Are there any movements to change the legal tender laws you just talked about there? Uh, not really. There's some, sometimes there's some discussion of it, and maybe there's been, been some headway. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you may see with the cryptocurrencies uh, incursion into the into commercial activities you may see some uh, some you know they establish a beachhead and there may be some uh, changes made very good we're going to take a break uh, this is jordan goodman of the money answer show my guest this hour is charles goyette uh, he's written a book called the last gold rush ever 
Seven Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit from It. You can find out more about him and his work at his website, charlesgoyette.com. We'll be back after this. There have been so many people dying this year of COVID, now over 500,000, that it's causing enormous financial distress for survivors who are left behind. Many people do not have close to enough saved up to be able to maintain their lifestyles when the breadwinner of the household dies of COVID or any other cause. You really don't want to leave your spouse and kids with huge financial burdens that they can't handle. The simple solution is to get a life insurance policy, which will pay those who depend on you a death benefit if you die. It makes sense why people get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. You just apply in a few minutes, and a phone or laptop will help you apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. No hidden fees. Cancel at any time. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now is the time to cross it off your list. So lock in your best rate today and get your family covered with Ladder. Go to ladderlife.com slash moneyanswers. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash moneyanswers. Ladderlife.com slash moneyanswers to get term life insurance quickly. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Charles Goyette, a writer particularly about financial topics and gold. His latest book is called The Last Gold Rush Ever, 
Seven Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit from It, his website, charlesgoyette.com. Welcome back to the show, Charles. Jordan, thank you for having me back on your program. And I ought to say about the book, because I think I know the book uh, jobbers and bookstores and so on have been a little confused about it. And they think that because it's called Seven Reasons for Doing This or That, that it's, you know, a, a get-rich-quick scheme. You know, here's how you trade, you know, gold options and double your money in six months and stuff. And it is definitely not that book. It's yeah. uh, And, in fact, it's called The Last Gold Rush, but it's, it's not about, you know, finding, uh, you know, the – the uh, the mother load somewhere gold rushes like the California gold rush. This is this is this actually describes a period when when people stand in line to exchange their depreciating currency, unbacked currency for gold. And we've seen that. Well, actually, you saw a little bit of that in Germany just uh, over uh, over the last year. People standing in line for other reasons. But when currencies start to depreciate really fast. Um, people start moving heaven and earth to quite try to exchange what they have of a devalued or a depreciating currency for uh, something of more enduring value. We've seen it in the United States during the Carter years. People lined up around the block to buy gold. The inflation rate was uh, so high. Mm-hmm. So, the, it, and so it, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme, and it doesn't tell you, you know, where the trend line is that if you always uh, sell below this, you know, you'll it's not that book. It's about it's it's a deep dive into really coming events, events that are on the uh, financial horizon, uh, like the ending of uh, the American American uh, geopolitical hegemony in some ways, the 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 new world order, the post World War II world order, the the impact that that will have, the impact of. Uh, the ending of uh, America's global military empire, the uh, the war on cash that is developing. You alluded to early in our conversation, you know, the uh, zero interest rate policies that, you know, can only be effectuated if people are driven to keep all their, their wealth institutionalized. I mean, nobody willingly, nobody willingly lets somebody, you know, withdraw you know, from the cash in their pockets, an, uh, uh, an amount as a, like a negative interest rate. So for a negative interest rate to really be successful, all the money, all the currency has to be institutionalized so that it's susceptible to policy changes and uh, taxation and so on. Despite so- all of this, though, gold has not done that much. I mean, in fact, it got up to about $2,000 an ounce, right. now it's $1,700, $1,800. It hasn't really moved that much with all of what we talked about. What really has moved is Bitcoin. Bitcoin went from 3000 a year and a half ago to over 50000 now. So some are saying, forget gold, Bitcoin is the new gold. That's really where I want to put my money to protect myself against a devaluation of the currency. What do you think of that? <laughs> I, think that's, I think it's wonderful if they do it with their money and not mine. <laughs> I what think could it's go uh, wrong? People say Bitcoin could go to a million or something. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the tree can grow to the sky. Sure, it can. And I, I say, if you're so inclined, uh, do it. But you will find that the, you, you know, I don't like to talk about Bitcoin because I enjoy the phenomena. And as I told you off the air, somebody gave me a Bitcoin or a fraction of Bitcoin many, many years ago, and I just huh, and I threw it in a drawer, and uh, have been looking for that that evidence of my Bitcoin ownership ever since. Since the prices hit these levels. Um, look, it's, it's, uh, it's not persuasive to me. I think blockchain, uh, blockchain technology is, uh, really important, very useful insofar as I know something about it. And I'm certainly willing to let other people risk their money in, uh, in Bitcoin. I don't see any, any fundamental 
enduring value. Uh, gold has been money for thousands of years, and it's likely to be money for thousands of years to come. The, uh, the appeal of it is enormous, and it's, it's global. And this has been the case um, since really the beginning of civilization. I mean, some would say with Bitcoin that it was when it was founded originally in 2009 by Satoshi, he limited the total number of Bitcoins that could ever be created to 21 million, and therefore there's a scarcity value to it. So it's the ultimate source of value. You, you wouldn't agree with that then? Well, I, I know there's, there's scarcity to it. I don't know that it's scarcity value, but it has, it has resulted in the proliferation of all kinds of other cryptocurrencies. So there's no scarcity to cryptocurrency. Uh, itself, and you know the central banks of the world are are lined up to get in on the act themselves. So, yes. if if you're saying that that uh, Bitcoin is unlike all others and superior to all other cryptocurrencies that will come down the line, I think the barrier to entries are going to be falling very very fast to uh, Bitcoin and whatever its superior, whatever its advantages in the marketplace are, uh, will be surpassed by new developments. Uh, uh, and the and and there's even one looming in the background that, uh, you know, I read about other people that are more knowledgeable about it than I am who insist that, you know, the state is going to step in and they're not going to let Bitcoin keep operating the way that it does. The adherents say, well, they can't stop it, you know, but but uh, they could sure, you know, just like we were talking about legal tender laws, they can sure quit enforcing contracts in, in Bitcoin and change the nature yeah. of uh of, uh, so, so, Why do you think gold has not done better? I mean, it's, you know, it's had a move here to 1800 or so, but... With everything you've been talking about, the massive buildup of debt, why isn't gold at five thousand? You know, much much higher than where it is today. Well, just take, just bide your time. It'll be there. No, I know, I know what you're saying. I think some people think it's a mystery that gold has had had this correction, and they say, well, it's a rise in interest rates, and gold has no yield. But you know, all the other things we're talking about, Bitcoin. Bitcoin has no yield, and it hasn't suffered. Copper has no yield. Silver has no yield, so a gold, and like almost all the others, is the one that has corrected the most. And I'm in, I'm in, uh, actually happen to be an enthusiast of the correction. And I wish, I wish silver would uh, correct back to where it was about a year ago when it was down below twelve dollars. If it did that one more time, I'd probably retire to the south coast of France. So I, I love seeing, uh, seeing both of these, both of these metals down. I, I, if if you would like a rationale for the correction. I would say, uh, you know, there's some evidence that, uh, oh, ETF holdings of, of uh, gold fell probably 3% recently. So there's been some liquidation there. Uh, there may be some countries that have had gold in their reserves that uh, have found conditions through the, uh, the COVID pandemic uh, more costly than they could easily otherwise afford and have sold gold look but we see we see this all the time jordan and i'll remind you and i know that you don't need to be reminded but for those of your listeners that don't watch this stuff this this happens all the time gold is the most liquid commodity in the world and so when people are faced with margin calls when people have a problem and stuff they turn to gold and they did so you know a year ago they did so during uh, the pandemic and um boy they they instantly sold gold off really really hard it was uh i think it was uh Oh, it had been up to $1,900 not so many years ago, but during the pandemic, so it sold off to uh, um, it sold off to below below $1,500. Silver dropped to below $12. So people, but then they instantly moved back up. You know, people met their margin calls, they met the immediate needs with their 
uh, highly liquid, uh, highly liquid monetary like uh, commodities and gold and silver, and then reestablished uh, their positions. So, yeah. as far as which kind of gold, but, do, do by the way, this, this, I'm sorry. Just saying, as far as which kind of gold, do you think American Eagles are the best, or Canadian Maple Leafs, or Cougarans, or bars? What is the best way to own gold if you want to own gold? You know, I like I like them all, and uh, the virtue of gold is that it doesn't depend on who signed the certificate. It doesn't depend on any counterparty's risk. It doesn't depend on you know any other promises they made or any other obligations they made. It doesn't de- it doesn't depend. You know, a government can be massively indebted and yet still issue uh, gold, and if it's real gold, it doesn't matter whose picture is on the coin. So uh, I like all of those. I think you know I th- I think Americans should own some bullion gold. And perhaps some bullion silver or, uh, and, uh, you know, silver eagles are certainly popular. Gold eagles are certainly popular and they're as good as any. I like Canadian maple leaves, the largest, uh, the most widely traded uh, gold coin in existence is the Krugerrand. It's not as popular now as it was 20 or 30 years ago, but I think they're, they're all fine. And as long as they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're minted with uh, honesty, integrity as all those majors are then it really doesn't matter. An ounce of gold is an ounce of gold without regard to, you know, whose name or uh, uh, the issuing government. How about the exchange-traded funds like a GLD or SLV for silver as a more liquid way of playing gold without having to have worried about getting broken into and having it stolen? Is that a good alternative? Yeah. Well, they're handy devices. They're certainly, they're certainly handy, and uh, um, there are times when you have no intention of holding uh, holding your gold for very long. You're trying to take advantage of a move or a liquidity situation or a need for liquidity coming up. They're they're very very handy. But you know, I, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to warn people that some really large macroeconomic tectonic plate shifts are uh, are coming, and uh, the gold that will be valuable. Is not the paper a paper piece? Uh, it's paper certificate that represents ownership of gold. But in the worst case scenario, even in the breakdown of a power grid, for example, when the banks stop printing out ATMs, or uh, you can't, uh, you know, under any any uh, number of circumstances, there will there will no doubt be a time in which you'd be very very happy to have actual physical gold, physical silver that you can get your hands on, and not paper representation. Not something that can be nationalized, not something that be taken over like a, you know, a foreign mine in a third world backwater country, um, yeah. but actual real physical gold and silver. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Charles Goyette. His latest book is called The Last Gold Rush Ever, Seven Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit from It. You can find out more at his website, charlesgoyette.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. 
There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Charles Goyette, is an author of uh, many books about gold. His latest one is called The Last Gold Rush Ever, Seven Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit From It. You can find out more at his website, charlesgoyette.com. Welcome back to the show, Charles. Thank you, Jordan. Why do you say it's the last gold rush ever? That means there'll never be another one like this? Why do you say last? Uh, it, it will be the last gold rush ever in uh, the U.S. dollar as presently constituted. So look, most people don't realize that the dollar has been through a number of iterations uh, over time. There, We've gone from, from uh, the gold dollar in which uh, the dollar was basically a warehouse receipt or a claim check. You take a $20 bill to the bank or to the treasury without a batter of an eye, anybody thinking about it, uh, they give you a $20 gold piece for a $20 bill. It was the, so that was the actual gold standard and paper money was a convenience. And then we went to the, the, um, the gold exchange standard and that prevailed for a long time. It was illegal for Americans to own monetary gold, but foreigners at least could take U.S. dollars. And those dollars uh, got to the point if they waited in line for a very long time, they would uh, be able to cash those dollars in for the promised gold uh, until, uh, until 1971. Fifty years ago this year, Nixon closed the gold window. I mean, Americans have been writing bad checks to the world. It, it had promised the world after World War II that, you know, you can hold U.S. dollars. They'll be perfectly safe if you, they're a valuable currency. If you ever distrust the dollar, or you have any suspicions that we're spending too much, you take your dollars to us and we'll, we'll redeem them in gold. And yet we were writing more checks, issuing more dollars than we had gold to redeem them. It was not, it's, that's what a check kiter does. It wasn't a good practice. And so, Finally, the rush for uh, for gold under the gold exchange standard uh, became so enormous, Nixon threw his hands up in despair and they closed the gold window. And so ever since then, we have been on on uh, just the paper dollar standard. Uh, James Grant calls it the PhD standard. You know, a bunch of academics get together in the Mariner Eccles building and they decide how many to issue. But in other words, we've gone through three iterations of the American dollar in uh, in just in less than 100 years, this will be the last gold rush in the dollar as it's presently constituted in the, uh, in the unbacked, irredeemable U.S. dollar. And thereafter, something is going to have to take its place. So, you know, I mean, a lot of countries have done worse. You know, I think we went through a period in the 90s where Brazil had five different currencies in, uh, in uh, I don't know, uh, three or four years. You know, but we're not supposed to be a banana republic either. Which so what a, happens to a country that has this? I mean, Venezuela comes to mind, Zimbabwe. They just printed ridiculously, so their currency became totally worthless. What is the end game when you have that and the currency collapse? How does that typically work out? 
Yeah, it's really, really a desperate situation. It's really bad. And uh, the irony is that the rest of the world has had, in, uh, in extremists like that, has had an alternative. They could go to the U.S. dollar. And so the, the, uh, the Boulevard of Venezuela collapses and it collapses. I just saw the other day they're starting to print new $1 billion notes. Well, that's after they lopped five zeros off their previous currency. So it just keeps, they just keep printing more and more and more and more. When it, when it gets bad enough, people start uh, um, trying to use U.S. dollars as a backup, as an alternative, and try to keep some in their mattress, but it slows down commerce. They try to, uh, they, they are forced to very primitive bartering. That's, that's sand in the gears of prosperity, you know, because, uh, you know, the coincidence of wants, you can't always find somebody that wants what you have to trade and stuff. It really, it turns societies very, very primitive and very, very poor when a currency collapses. But the, the tragedy is that while they have had in Zimbabwe, they had the U.S. dollar that they could use as an alternative. And even though the government didn't like it and tried to outlaw it, people were willing to risk, uh, you know, the the uh, the uh, the anger of the state, the criminality uh, charges that they faced for using alternative currencies like the dollar. They were willing to do it because the other currency was so utterly worthless. There's no point in taking it. But in this case, there is no dollar for the dollar. There is nothing to back up the dollar. We need a super dollar, I guess you'd say, yes. Yeah, and of course, but the super dollars are administered by the same people that have print, printed the dollar into its present predicament. And so let's make sure the, the monetary czar, okay? You have complete control over the world's monetary system. Yes. In the current situation. What would you do to replace the dollar so it can't be inflated out of existence like this? What would you do? I would uh, I, I would uh, do I would do absolutely nothing and let people discover and find for themselves the currencies that they want to use. And you know that's that's fine because a lot of people will think this is rather radical and leading edge talk and uh, uh, they can continue to use the dollars that are in existence for so long as they wish and they're it's fine with me if they do that if the dollar depreciates while they hold it, if it loses its value and ends up virtually worthless at some point, that's fine. They've made their bed. Now they can lay in it. Other people will want to use uh, something that uh, is uh, backed by gold. They will look for superior currencies for countries with superior capital practices. You know, capital is very, very mobile. You can do amazing things these days. I can go to a foreign country with an American credit card and buy stuff in a foreign currency, and it's instantly translated into U.S. dollars and deducted from from my account, well, this can be done with, uh, you know, with gold. You can go into the grocery store at some point and, you know, buy a loaf of French bread and a couple of bottles of wine and have them, de- you know, deduct a couple of uh, grams from your gold holdings uh, somewhere. So you've got to let alternative systems develop, and this is extremely important because if the if the state keeps its its boot heel on the face of the marketplace and lets and forbids the development of alternatives forbids um, for example people trading in uh, in gold and so on uh, to the extent that they're successful in, do, in doing so when their system collapses when it shows problems there is nothing that has evolved that is capable of moving in and taking its place. Yeah. So, do you think that the government may do that as Roosevelt did in, I guess, 1933? Outlaw, is gold too much of a threat to the government? Could you see them doing that again? 
I, I don't really think so. I'm a, in a minority, maybe in the uh, in the community of people that have an interest in gold and say so, but I do not think so. And the real secret to that, Jordan, is that uh, of course the government wanted the gold. Of course they wanted the money. Of course they had to tell you that gold was evil. It was bad. You should hold it in your hands. But it was okay if the, if the government had it all. This is what happens everywhere. The Soviets did the same thing. You know, they tortured people for uh, for their gold and uh Yet, if there was something wrong with having gold, why did the state want it? But the truth is, in the American precedent under FDR, they had to get gold out of the monetary system because it prevented them from uh, devaluing the dollar. As long as gold was tied to the dollar, the dollar to gold, they couldn't devalue the dollar, and they were desperate to devalue, to cheapen uh, the worth of the American currency. They don't have that problem this time because they devalue the dollar with each successive act of money printing every day. No, no. Um, so uh, let's say everything that you say happens and the, the, the pinprick happens, all these bubbles are deflated. Describe life in, in a, a post-bubble economy. Well, you, you, could, you could have a whole range of apocalyptic if people, uh, you know, if people take steps to, uh, to insulate themselves from the uh, fragility of the system, then they can go on, the companies and people that can, uh, financial institutions that have taken such steps will be able to survive, but it's a setback, you know, and we have, we have setbacks. I mean, we had, you know, the great depression and then we had the, uh, 82 recession, which was really bad. And then we had the great recession and all of these are huge dislocations. Um, this one will certainly be bigger than, than, uh, than any of those, but I don't. I don't want you to think that it's gold cranks, or any of your listeners think it's just gold cranks talking about this happening. This is the fate of all currencies that are issued without discipline, without regard to uh, the underlying value of the currency. And I, I, I'll cite for you, like I, I actually I did last time we talked, but we didn't really get into it. But um, uh, Stephen Roach, who's practically got his hair on fire, running around, you know, on CNBC and Bloomberg and stuff, talking about uh, that the dollar is about to be rocked to its foundations and and uh, that America's, uh, um, Americans are going to suffer um, a, uh, a substantial destruction of their living standard in a way that they're simply not prepared for. And he's talking about a 35% loss of value in the dollar this year, not in some, you know, far off mm-hmm. bygone, by and by when we die, but this year. And he started talking about this last year, and, you know, the dollar is down 6.8%. I think uh, the dollar index ended up down about 6.8% at the end of uh, December. But he says, the, he says, we're only in the third inning. This is a nine-inning baseball game. It's got a long ways to go. And that is a more substantial dislocation by far than something like uh, the mortgage meltdown or yes. even yeah, yeah, the Great Recession. Unfortunately, we have to end. We covered a lot of ground in the last hour. My guest this hour has been Charles Goyette. His latest book is called The Last Gold Rush Ever, Seven Reasons for the Runaway Gold Market and How You Can Profit from It. You can find out more at his website, charlesgoyette.com. Thanks so much. We learned a lot on this version of The Money Answer Show, Charles. Jordan, thank you very much. Always great to talk to you. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.